This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Margaret Chowning. I'm the chair of the Moses Lectureship Committee. We and the Graduate Division are pleased to present Yuri Schleskin, the fall speaker in the Bernard Moses Memorial Lecture Series. In 1937, University of California President Robert Gordon Sproul and the UC Board of Regents established the Bernard Moses Memorial Lectureship in the Social Sciences. The lectureship honors the memory of the late Bernard Moses, a professor of history and political science at the University of California from 1875 to 1911, and an emeritus professor from 1911 until his death in 1930. Professor Moses earned a worldwide reputation as a pioneer scholar, especially for his contributions to understanding the historical origins of the problems of the Latin American republics. Professor Moses was also an expert on Philippine history, and he served as a member of the United States Philippine Commission from 1900 to 1904. Past lecturers have included Herma Hill Kay, Nicholas Ryusanovsky, George Lakoff, Kenneth Stamp, Ken Jowett, Reinhard Bendix, Robert Scalapino, John Rowe, Woodrow Bora, Carolyn Merchant, Jean Lave, Emmanuel Size, Marianne Mason, and Iwa Ong. And now I'd like to say a few words about our lecturer today, Yuri Sleskin. Appointed the Jane K. Sather Professor of History in 2009, Professor Sleskin has been a member of the UC Berkeley Department of History since 1992. His numerous and wide-ranging publications have focused on ethnic minorities in the Soviet Union, as well as Soviet historiography, ethnography, and ethnogenetics. Winner of the 2005 National Jewish Book Award, among several other prizes, Sleskin's groundbreaking book, The Jewish Century, has been translated into seven languages and remains both widely respected and controversial. Earlier publications include Arctic Mirrors, Russia, and the Small People of the North, Between Heaven and Hell, The Myth of Siberia in Russian Culture as a co-editor, the article The USSR as a Communal Apartment, or How a Socialist State Promoted Ethnic Particularism, and a co-edited volume with Sheila Fitzpatrick called In the Shadow of Revolution, Life Stories of Russian Women from 1917 to the Second World War. Professor Sleskin earned his master's degree in Russian language and literature from the University of Moscow in 1978. Departing the USSR in the late 1970s, he worked as a translator in Mozambique and Portugal before moving to the United States, where he was awarded his doctoral degree in history at the University of Texas at Austin in 1989. Sleskin has been awarded fellowships from Wissenschaft Colleague in Berlin, Berlin, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Hoover Institution, and the Guggenheim Foundation. He is also a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. All of these honors are testament to the innovation and creativity of his scholarship. Professor Sleskin's lecture today, to quote from the enticing blurb that drew you all here, explores the private lives of Bolshevik government officials along with their wives, maids, lovers, children, and and comrades. Revolutions, Sleskin tells us, devour their parents. They begin as tragedy and end at home. By framing the Bolshevik Revolution as a family drama, Sleskin reimagines the story of the Bolsheviks' 
rise, please join me in welcoming uh, my friend, Professor Yuri Sleskin. Thank you very much, Margaret. Thank you all for coming here. Uh, just a sec. Um, and thank you, the Moses Committee, for inviting me. It's a great honor for me to be here, and it feels great to be Moses, if one lives for a short period of time. Uh, so follow me, and I'll, I'll get you there. And I promise not to take too long. <laughs> um, so my presentation is based on a book I'm writing on the history of the so-called House of Government in central Moscow, where most uh, top uh, Bolshevik officials lived in the 1930s as tenants, uh, husbands, fathers, and neighbors before being escorted one by one to their deaths. So it is a story of a vanguard's backyard. Uh, or as uh, Margaret said, uh, of a revolution that began as a tragedy and ended at home. Uh, Before the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks were a millenarian apocalyptic sect, which is to say, to use a standard definition, a faith-based group in conflict with the world, with voluntary membership contingent on personal conversion and a strong sense of chosenness, exclusiveness, and ethical austerity. Uh, The main condition for joining was unconditional faith um, in the imminent and total destruction of the existing order of things to be accompanied by the bloody revenge of the weak on the strong with the weak inheriting the world. Uh, And to quote from the Internationale, uh, those who have been not becoming all. Uh, And followed in short order uh, by a collective this worldly salvation uh, leading to a vaguely described state of absolute perfection, at least for the chosen. Uh, As in most such sects, The uh, core members were young men who had abandoned their fathers, mothers, wives, children, brethren, sisters, and, yes, their own lives, in order to join the charismatic leader uh, who served as the sect's sacred center. Uh, Lenin's nickname was the old man. Uh, Women made up a very small proportion of the membership uh, and played crucial but auxiliary roles as poets, muses, debate audiences, uh, prison liaisons, model martyrs, uh, and so-called technical workers. Uh, uh, Socialist millenarians were competing for souls with the Christian ones. But whereas most preachers of a Christian apocalypse 
uh, were workers and uh, peasants. Most theorists of the workers and peasants revolution uh, were students and so-called eternal students. Uh, both kinds of students tended to be the children of uh, clerks, clergymen, doctors, teachers, Jews, and other so-called uh, proletarians of mental labor, uh, or rather professional intellectuals as metaphoric Jews, uh, chosen, learned, and alienated, uh, or Jews uh, as honorary intellectuals irrespective of what they did for a living. Now, the main difference in the nature of missionary work was that if the Christian message uh, was in theory for everyone, the socialist one was aimed exclusively at the elect, uh, peasants in the case of the socialist revolutionaries and industrial workers in the case of the, of the uh, Bolsheviks. Um, another difference was a much greater intellectualism of socialist sectarianism. A conversion to socialism was a conversion to the intelligentsia, to a sacred fusion of millenarian faith and lifelong learning. Uh, every text that one read uh, confirmed the truth of the communist revelation. And no texts confirmed it more decisively than, the, uh, than those from the Russian and European literary canons associated with intelligentsia membership. Uh, among the leading Bolsheviks on the eve of the revolution, there were a few proletarian converts, all of them in secondary roles. Uh, among the leading Bolshevik women, there were none. Like, like all millenarian sectarians, the Bolsheviks did not believe in the family. The only uh, true family was the sect as a whole, uh, he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, these are my mother and my brothers. Uh, or whatever arrangements would prevail in the post-apocalyptic world. Uh, but they did mate and procreate. Um, since uh, uh, women were scarce, scarce, uh, and sex with outsiders was a source of contagion. Most women had more than one partner, uh, sometimes at the same time, but mostly uh, in more or less quick succession. Uh, children were raised in uh, prisons, uh, exile settlements, uh, communal apartments, and so on, uh, by their mothers, uh, and their partners, old and new. The prophecy came true on Easter Monday, 1917, when Lenin entered Petrograd on a train and proclaimed that the time had come, the prophecy had come true, um, and this generation would not pass away until all these things had happened. Uh, as for those socialists who had ears but did not hear, he knew that they were neither hot nor cold. 
And so since they were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, he was going to spit them out of his mouth. The welcoming reception and the eventual, and the eventual storming of the Winter Palace uh, were organized by a man named Nikolai Podvoysky, a priest's son and a former seminarian. Uh, at the time of the revolution, most top Bolsheviks were in their 20s and uh, 30s. Uh, the old man was uh, f- uh, 47. Um, during the next three years, um, students and eternal students would become uh, warriors and boys would become men. One of the most common plots of Bolshevik Civil War literature is a story of an apocalyptic slaughter. The storming of Babylon, the Battle of Armageddon, or some combination of the two. The central theme, as in the original model, was merciless retribution through total violence against feminized evil. evil. Uh, Give her as much grief and torture as the glory and luxury she gave herself. The other one, and by far the most popular, was Exodus, or the story of an escape from slavery and the transformation of a uh, stiff-necked people into a kingdom of priests uh, and a uh, holy nation. Moses, uh, speaking of the devil, could be represented as two different characters, the commissar who spoke directly to history and the, folk, the inarticulate folk hero who led the march through the desert and presided over the extermination of the Hittites and the Amorites, uh, or as one great leader, leather-bound on the outside and merciful on the inside. Uh, the, um, the man who pioneered the leather uniform was Yakov Sverlov, the first head of the Soviet state and an eternal student from the family of a Jewish engraver. His favorite poet was Heine, and his favorite stanza, according to his uh, young female secretary, was, and this is for Joachim Klein in particular, Ein neues Lied, ein besseres Lied, o Freunde, will ich euch dichten. Wir wollen hier auf Erden schon das Himmelreich errichten. Or in uh, T.J. Reed's translation, a different song, a better song will get the subject straighter. Let's make heaven on earth, my friends, instead of waiting till later. His best friend and fellow Heine admirer was Philip Galashokin, uh, an eternal student from the family of a Jewish contractor who presided over the killing of the Tsar's family. When the whites entered the basement where the execution took place, they found on a blood-stained wall an inscription from Heine's poem about the writing on the wall. Belsatzer ward aber in selbige Nacht von seinen Knechten umgebracht. Or again, in T.J. Reed's translation, before the sun could rise again, Belshazzar by his men was slain. Again, I should have said. 
Now, all through the war, the top Bolsheviks moved around continuously uh, from one front of Armageddon to another, one assignment to the next. Uh, Svirlov died of this, of this Spanish flu. Um, he contracted in Kharkov while uh, supervising the election of the Ukrainian Communist Party's Central Committee. And Velashokin would go on to preside over the extermination of one half of the uh, Kazakh rural population. Uh, most, or rather I should say some, some of the top uh, Bolsheviks uh, were accompanied by their permanent female comrades. But most um, had uh, short-term affairs with nurses, secretaries, cryptographers, uh, and uh, propaganda department typists, among others. Um, the revolution and civil war were followed by this so-called new economic policy, proclaimed as a temporary retreat and analogous to what in American history is known as the Great Disappointment. Uh, when the world failed to come to an end on October the 22nd, uh, 1844, and thousands of New Englanders, in the words of one of them, wept and wept until the day dawned. The postponement of the millennium uh, or the failure of the prophecy, depending on which faction you belong to, coincided with the death of the prophet. Uh, Trotsky couldn't attend Lenin's funeral because of a mysterious nervous illness. Uh, in 1927, uh, 1,300 top government officials stayed at the Lenin rest home number one outside of Moscow. Six of them were found to be healthy. 65% of the rest were diagnosed with various forms of emotional distress described as neurasthenia, psychoneurasthenia, psychosis, uh, or nervous exhaustion. Uh, one public prosecutor who couldn't stop weeping, and it had been three years, couldn't stop weeping following Lenin's death, was treated for traumatic neurosis which he, in his countless pleas for help, uh, called nervosis. Um, the surviving old Bolsheviks, now top government officials, uh, moved into the Kremlin and several downtown Moscow hotels that had been converted into uh, dormitories known as Houses of Soviets, uh, and settled into a busy boisterous and promiscuous, uh, but also a self-conscious, self-doubting, and self-loathing uh, communal domesticity, uh, visiting each other's rooms, drinking strong tea, smoking cheap tobacco, having sex, arguing about historical necessity, uh, running the world revolution, and weeping and weeping. Um, the Bolshevik literature of the 1920s consisted, among other kinds of things, uh, of 
Gothic tales and the main discoverer and interpreter of those is among us today. Gothic tales of communist maidens being pursued by vampires in dorms that look like medieval castles. And more often, I would say, of stories of communist men being held captive by fleshy females in um, a suffocating world of lace curtains, orange lampshades, uh, soft pillows, furry slippers, uh, rubber plants, porcelain cats, shiny meat grinders, and other signposts to hell. Uh, the unredeemed and ultimately irredeemable world of um, the millennium postponed um, prophecy unfulfilled, perhaps, and revolution betrayed, as Trotsky would put it. Um, It was at this point, when they were in their 30s and 40s, that uh, many top Bolsheviks left their old female comrades for younger women, most of them recent recruits to the proliferating secretariats and commissariats of the ever-expanding Soviet state. The great party theoretician, Nikolai Bukharin, married the daughter of one of his oldest friends after taking her away uh, from the son of another old friend. The chairman of the Committee for the Settlement uh, of Toiling Jews on the Land, Simeon de Manstein, married his adopted uh, daughter and the chairman of the military board of the Soviet Supreme Court, Valentin Trifonov, uh, married the daughter of his own wife, uh, who had been once married to his best friend before becoming Stalin's lover, before getting together with him. So one day he simply moved out of the mother's room and into the daughter's. They all continued to share the same apartment. One of the offspring of the new Union was the great Soviet writer Yuri Trifonov, uh, whose novella, uh, terrific novella, I think, uh, The House on the Embankment, gave me the idea for this, for this project. He was born in 1925, the lowest point in the history of the Soviet great disappointment and uh, highest in number of births among Bolshevik officials. Uh, now, some, some Bolshevik officials married younger women without leaving their old female comrades. The number one Soviet cartoonist, Boris Yefimov, lived openly with two wives, and so did his brother, the number one Soviet journalist, Mikhail Kaltsov. Those uh, who remained uh, nominally monogamous, um, some of those, I should say, who remained nominally monogamous, started long-term long-term love affairs. Maybe all of them did, but I only found some in uh, evidence of that in the archives. Started long-term love, love affairs and produced a great many documents in the um, apparently quite common but uh, understudied genre of secret letters to secret lovers. 
which, because of their assumption of utmost secrecy, intimacy, immediacy, and unmediated emotional um, uh, immediacy, um, were similar to to diaries and uh, prison confessions, two other popular Bolshevik genres. Many of the same people also kept diaries, which they used as uh, instruments for self-examination, self-improvement, and self-disciplining, as well as outlets for weeping and weeping. Um, And, of course, most of them would end up writing their prison confessions for more or less the same uh, same reasons. Now, one obvious reason for weeping was that a band of brothers had become a society of strangers. As Aron Soltz, known as the party uh, conscience, uh, uh, put it, there are many more of us now, and it's very difficult to have the same feeling of closeness toward each individual Bolshevik. But the biggest problem, as always, as always in the history of sects, uh, certainly, uh, was not that there was not enough love for countless remote neighbors, it's that there was too much love for a few close ones. Uh, Sects, by definition, transcend Uh, the bonds of kinship, friendship, and sexual love by dissolving them in the common common, uh, uh, devotion to a particular path of salvation uh, and when available to the prophets who indicate and represent it. Uh, The sect's greatest enemy, along with Babylon, is is, uh, marriage. Uh, because of its centrality to all non-sectarian life and its uh, traditional claim to primary loyalty. But marriage is not just a source, a powerful source of alternative devotion. The reason it is central to all non-sectarian life is that it regulates reproduction and reproduction is by definition at odds with sectarian life which is based on a voluntary union of conscious adult converts. Uh, Sects are about brotherhood and, as an afterthought, uh, sisterhood, not about parents and children. This is why most end-of-the-world scenarios promise fulfillment in this generation. Uh, Most radical Protestants objected to infant uh, baptism, and all uh, millenarian sectarians in their militant phase attempt to reform marriage or abolish it altogether by decreeing uh, celibacy or promiscuity. Uh, Jesus' claim that his family was not his true family and his demand that his disciples hate their erstwhile fathers, mothers, wives, children, brethren, and sisters was as central to his ministry as it was impossible 
for his later followers to imitate. Uh, monastics um, being the rule-proving exception. Um, now, of the three fundamental kinds of loyalty debated by the Bolsheviks, friendship uh, was seen uh, as a fully rational alliance based on shared convictions. Communists were not supposed to have non-communist f- uh, friends, and most of them did not. Uh, Jesus didn't have to mention friends among the loved ones to be hated either. Committed sectarians can be trusted usually not to form close personal attachments, non-sexual attachments to unrelated non- non-sectarians. The Bolsheviks did not have friends. Uh, they had comrades. Erotic love, on the other hand, was a different story insofar as it was widely acknowledged to be based on a feeling that, according to Solz, the Bolshevik spokesman on these matters, uh, comparable to revolutionary enthusiasm in its power, clarity, and purity. One was, of course, free to resist and overcome that feeling if it interfered with revolutionary enthusiasm, but even Soltz recognized that it was a serious challenge. Uh, The revolution was commonly referred to as a leap from the realm of necessity to the realm of freedom. Love and uh, marriage were a problem because of their sect-defying, sect-destroying reproductive function, but they were also a problem uh, because they combined the realm of necessity and the realm of freedom in ways that seemed compelling and mysterious in equal measure. Uh, Love is the law of life, wrote Solz. But a random encounter that leads to a particular attachment is not especially if one considers the unpredictability of reciprocity. The third basic form of loyalty debated by the Bolsheviks, blood relationship, um, lay entirely in the realm of necessity. One did not choose one's uh, father, mother, children, brothers or sisters. One could, of course, leave them behind, as all sects prescribed, and most underground Bolsheviks did. But the party did not make it a formal requirement, and after the revolution seemed uncertain about how to proceed. Um, And then the day dawned. Between 1928 and about 1934, Uh, the Bolsheviks forced the prophecy to come true by staging what is known as the Stalin Revolution or the Revolution from Above or the era of the first five-year plans. Um, They built what they called the Economic Foundations of Socialism, known as the House of Socialism, and they built a new house for themselves, known as the House of Government. The chronicles 
of those years are known as production novels. But none of them actually are because no production of any kind ever takes place. They are rather construction stories. Or since human souls are also under construction, construction cum conversion stories. What matters is the act of building. A new world, new man, new Jerusalem, uh, a new tower that will reach the heavens. As one character from one of those novels puts it, uh, it's the Tower of Babel only in reverse, from dispersion to unity. Uh, the, um, these novels uh, were also, by extension, uh, creation myths. The epigraph to Ilya Ehrenberg's The Second Day, which was published in 1933, is an epigraph to them all. Um, and God said, let there be a firmament amidst the waters. And it was so. And the evening and the morning were the second day. The main model besides Genesis uh, for countless those novels was Pushkin's The Bronze Horseman um, about the building of St. Petersburg on a swamp. Now the House of Government was built in an area known at the time and still today as the swamp uh, on the low, frequently flooded bank of the Moscow River, diagonally across from the Kremlin and directly across from, from Russia's largest church, the Cathedral of Christ the Savior, which was blown up to make way for what was to become the ultimate public building of all time, the Palace of Soviets. Um, the architect of both buildings, Boris Afan, was given the penthouse apartment in the House of Government, overlooking the site of his next and the world's best building uh, project. The architect of the entire Soviet building project, continued to live in the Kremlin, supervising both structures along with everything else. Uh, the House of Government belonged to the so-called transitional type, halfway between fully communal housing, based explicitly on monasteries, uh, and bourgeois residential buildings organized around family apartments. Um, early Soviet communalism was about um, interchangeable individuals living transparent lives in elastic uh, public spaces. Um, the question was whether individual cells would be attached to long corridors in multi-story communal houses or to endless roads traversing the newly disentered landscape or not attached to anything at all. Uh, Bukharin's father-in-law, Yuri Larin, envisioned uh, flying, floating, crawling, and, uh, uh, and rolling individual dwellings with each human being behaving, uh, as he put it, like a snail carrying 
its own shell. Uh, in the meantime, the House of Government was a compromise, combining 505, was the largest residential building at the time in the world, 505 uh, family apartments with a vast network of public spaces, including the including a theater, uh, cafeteria, library, grocery store, department store, walk-in clinic, hairdressing salon, uh, post office, bank, telegraph, uh, laundry, tennis courts, um, two gyms, two daycare centers, several dozen rooms for various purposes from pool playing and target shooting to uh, symphony orchestra rehearsals and the shock worker movie theater, uh, the first sound movie theater in the Soviet Union uh, for 1,500 spectators uh, with a cafe, a reading room, and a band stage. Uh, Some critics argued that the House of Government was functionally analogous to the Dakota on Central Park West (laughs) between 72nd and 73rd Streets in New York City, but they realized their mistake. (laughs) Somebody lived not far from there. Uh, Realized their their mistake um, soon after the House of Socialism was completed. Um, There was going to be no second great disappointment uh, and no pointless criticism. The the Soviet mid-1930s were a time of the confident expectation of the inevitable, the dignified domesticity of public officials, uh, the knowing smile of a pregnant woman, the Bolshevik post-St. Augustine age. As Isaac Babel put it in his speech at the First Congress of Soviet Writers in 1934, the first layer of scaffolding has come down from the uh, House of Socialism. And even the most nearsighted people can see that building's shape and its beauty. Uh, We're all witnesses to the fact that our country has been gripped by a powerful feeling of pure physical joy. That feeling was to be expressed in the literature of socialist realism, which Bukharin, in his speech at the Congress, described as, and I quote, the kind of poetic work that depicts the most general and universal features of a particular epoch, representing them through unique characters that are both specific and abstract, characters that combine the greatest possible generalizability with enormous inner richness. Such for example, is Goethe's Faust. And such, according to the Congress, were Don Quixote, Hamlet, and Robinson Crusoe, among others, many others. What all those names had in common that they, was that they represented golden ages, no longer the miracle of birth, early development, and certainly not the skepticism and rigidity of old age, but the strength, self-confidence, dignity of mature adulthood on the verge of immortality. Uh, 
socialist realism was to socialism and therefore to the whole of human existence. What Goethe's Faust had been to the bourgeois age. It was an age without old age and possibly without death. Uh, no Soviet writer was seen as being remotely comparable to Goethe, but of the two most admired and widely discussed Soviet novels of the mid-1930s, one, Nikolai Ostrovsky's How Steel Was Tempered, was about a blind and paralyzed Bolshevik hero who attains immortality through a woman's love and the act of autobiographical writing. And the other, Leonid Leonov's The Road to Ocean, was about a Bolshevik Faust who ascends to the heaven of his own making. So to quote from the central text of the Soviet 1930s, translated from the original German, and this time I'm not going to to try the original German. Everything transitory is only an allegory. What could not be achieved here comes to pass. What no one could describe is here accomplished. The eternal feminine draws us aloft. When the top Bolsheviks and their new families moved into, into their new house, most of the men were in their 40s and early 50s. Most of the women were in their early to mid-30s. Most of the children were between 5 and 10, and most of the maids, and each family had at least one, uh, were peasant girls in their early 20s, um, refugees from uh, famine-gripped farms. Their masters had recently collectivized. Um, Apartment geography reflected the family hierarchy. The apartment's sacred center uh, and largest room was father's study, with walls covered from wall to ceiling with dark oak bookcases. The most frequently mentioned books were the massive gold-lettered uh, multi-volume editions of the Brockhaus and Efron Encyclopedia, uh, Alfred Brame's uh, Lives of Animals, um, the Treasures of World Literature series from uh, academia publishers, and the collected works of great classics from various previous golden ages. Mothers might or might not have rooms of their own. Children almost always did. Uh, maids usually lived in small nooks uh, by the entrance to the kitchen, usually behind a curtain. Uh, and the, the rest of the rooms were occupied by grown children, elderly parents, and other uh, relatives and dependents. The elderly parents and other relatives and dependents uh, included former priests, rabbis, shopkeepers, and illiterate grandmothers. Many of the men and some of the women worried about the swamp coming back, but no one seemed to know how to stem the tide. Now, as a building of the transitional type, the house of government was part 
neoclassical, particularly the theater facade facing the future um, Palace of Soviets, and part constructivist, especially the apartments themselves. Many house residents found the large windows and straight lines bare and dry, and most did something about it. Brought in old beds, chests, and desks, hung up swords, uh, pictures, and photographs, and uh, laid down carpets, rugs, uh, and bearskins. Most drew the line at curtains, which were seen as an irredeemable symbol of bourgeois domesticity. Uh, Men switched from leather coats to suits, and most women, in the words of one of them, suddenly discovered that they were beautiful. Uh, many had new dresses made by government uh, seamstresses. Um, manicures were popular. Lipstick was seen as an irredeemable symbol of bourgeois eroticism. Uh, men only slept at home, usually between 4 a.m. and 11 a.m. or noon. Uh, most women had professional jobs as uh, editors, accountants, statisticians, economists, uh, doctors, pharmacists, and engineers, uh, and came home late. And uh, so the house of government, the apartment, uh, chess and music rooms, movie theaters, and especially the courtyards, the basement, and the embankment, along with the nearby Gorky Park, belonged to the children. Um, their lives as recorded in their diaries, letters, uh, and memoirs were a more or less faithful replica uh, of aristocratic family life from before the revolution. The remote, slightly feared, and much admired father who only came home on his days off. The Bolsheviks had abandoned a seven-day week, and the word Sunday, which is in Russian is resurrection. Uh, every sixth day was a day off. Um, the much less remote, less feared, and less admired mother, uh, permanently overshadowed by her heroic husband, the much disliked German governess who would take small children on daily supervised walks, the more or less dreaded dance and piano teachers, and the beloved peasant nanny who did most of the child rearing until the time would come for the children to start reading the books that their fathers would select for them. Um, the books that their fathers would select for them came mostly from the 19th century literary canon, and so did their lives, complete with the uh, Christmas Midnight Magic, now called uh, New Year's Eve, swimming and berry-picking at country states, now called Dutchess, annual trips to Black Sea palaces, now called rest homes, uh, and uh, an intense cult of pure love, fierce friendship, and spiritual self-improvement through reading of the same books, uh, letter writing, and diary keeping. Every girl was Natasha Rostova 
from War and Peace, and every boy uh, was Prince Andrei. Um, and then night came, and the knock on the door. So in 1937-38, most of the men and some of the women were arrested and accused of degeneracy, duplicity, corruption, and treason. They were all guilty, and some of them knew it. Most men uh, were executed, and most men, including the great party theoretician Nikolai Bukharin, the chairman of the Committee for the Settlement of Toiling Jews on the Land, Simeon de Manstein, and the former member of the Soviet Supreme Court, Valentin Trifonov. Most of the men were executed within weeks or months, and most of the women, including Bukharin's uh, and Trifonov's young wives, uh, were sent to special camps for the family members of uh, uh, traitors to the motherland, where they would spend spend eight years plus another ten or so in exile before returning to their children's new homes, uh, old, sick, um, destroyed, unwanted, and unloved. Children were adopted by their nannies, grandparents, aunts and uncles, or family friends, or sent to special secret police orphanages. Um, a common, common story, frequently reproduced in reminiscences and memoirs, is of a small child, let's say a 12 to 14-year-old girl, uh, having been awakened by the bright light, the, the noise of the search, uh, the sound of her mother's crying, watching her parents being taken away, and running to her aunt's or grandmother's apartment. She would ring the bell, apartment very often within the same house of government. She would ring the bell. What happened next would later be described as a test of humanity. If the ant did not open the door, or open the door only to disappear into the kitchen, re-emerge with a sandwich, and tell the girl to never come back again, she would be classified as an orthodox sectarian, for whom the only family was the party, or as a bad person, defined as someone who would protect herself and her immediate family at the expense of all other loyalties and commitments. The orthodox sectarian would soon become a bad person by definition. A good person was someone who would risk her immediate family's safety for the sake of extended family and close friends, those who could be called surrogate family. And a saint was somebody who destroyed her family by welcoming strangers, herself a stranger to moral nuance 
whose goodness uh, lay beyond everyday uh, moral geography. Now, within a decade, about half of the surviving boys and some of the girls would be killed in the Great Patriotic War. The world's ultimate public building, the House of Soviets, would never be built. In the 1940s, during the war, uh, metal piles from the world's largest foundation pit would be used to make anti-tank barriers. In the early 1960s, under Khrushchev, the, the world's largest foundation pit would become the world's largest outdoor swimming pool. In the 1980s, under Gorbachev, many of the remaining children of the revolution would become the leading ideologues of perestroika, or radical restructure. And in the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the world's largest outdoor swimming pool would once again become Russia's largest church, the Cathedral of Christ the Savior. So as I, I wrote in that, in that blurb, revolutions do not devour their children. Revolutions are devoured by the children of the, of the, of the revolutionaries. Um, the same is true, I believe, of all, of all uh, millenarian sects, most of which don't survive beyond one, <clears throat> one generation. Um, and now to conclude, I have interviewed for this project about 60 people who grew up in the House of Government. One woman born in 1924, was 14 when her parents were arrested. She remembered returning home one evening from a friend's place, looking up at her windows as usual, being surprised by the fact that they were all brightly lit up, not being greeted by the guard at the entrance, running in, and seeing the mess left by the secret police, being told by her nanny that her parents had been taken away, and running to her aunt's apartment, and ringing the bell, um, and being taken in, as it turned out for good. Uh, so her aunt, as it turned out, was a good person. About a week later, the telephone rang. The, the young man at the other end asked for her, and when she answered the phone, said that he was her mother's interrogator, I mean father's, I'm sorry, father's interrogator, that her father was fine, that he would soon be out, but that in the meantime, he had asked for some garlic, onion, and warm socks. And would she please bring those things to, let's say, the intersection across the square from the secret police headquarters. She did. The young man, according to her, was pleasant, if a little shy. She handed him her little uh, package. He said, 
Why don't you walk me back to the building while we talk? Uh, she did. They talked. Uh, and said goodbye at the door. She never heard from that man or her father again. But she remembered, claimed to remember, that day, April the 15th, 1938, for the rest of her life. Something else she she retained for the rest of her life was her intense love and admiration for her father, the People's Commissar of Naval Construction. Now, 60 years later, toward the end of her life, she was allowed to see her father's interrogation file. It was huge, hundreds and hundreds of pages. At first, he rejected all the accusations, but eventually he confessed to everything and started supplying um, eerily detailed uh, hair-raising belief-defying information about foreign spies, uh, secret cells, poisoned wells, invisible messages, clandestine meetings, uh, elaborate assassination attempts, all of them failed, and so on. Um, Then she took a closer look. The day he broke down was April the 15th, 1938. And she understood, or or thought she did. Her father must have been up in the interrogation room overlooking the square that day with, with one of his interrogators, probably the one playing the good guy, when he was shown his 14-year-old daughter, accompanied by his other interrogator, probably the bad guy, walking across the square toward the house of torture in which he was being held. And so he told them whatever they wanted to hear. So she gave me the file to look at, and it was indeed huge, and it did indeed consist of two parts, a short one that didn't contain much, and a long one that began on April the 15th, 1938. Um, And then I noticed another file attached to the first one that the woman had never mentioned. It was her mother's interrogation file. It was tiny, three pages long. It said, the accused rejects all accusations and refuses to participate in what she calls a travesty of justice. She maintains her husband's innocence uh, as well as her own. After several initial exchanges, she has consistently refused to cooperate with the investigators. Sentence, death by a firing squad, to be carried out immediately. So thank you very much. So they're all sitting in the House of Government waiting to be picked off one by one. Is there anywhere for them to go or does anyone get out? Or are they all just sitting there being completely worrisome and paranoid about what's going to happen? And how long does it take 
for um, the whole process of going through all 500 rooms? It uh, wasn't all the 500 rooms, were most of them. And of course, the so-called Great Terror uh, affected many more buildings in many more cities. But yes, they were sitting there waiting, hoping against hope not to be picked up, thinking of themselves as being innocent uh, and being picked up one at a time. The process lasted for about a year and a half, a little, a little longer than that. Uh, and so people would be, usually men would be the first ones to be arrested. Then there was a special decree on family members a few months after the beginning of the large um, campaign. Um, and so then the women began to be picked up. Uh, as well, um, and uh, toward the middle of 1938, uh, most apartments had been affected. Uh, most of the rooms were sealed to preserve the evidence. Although there are stories about some boys actually sneaking in to get some things. Um, the Remnants of the families of the arrested uh, tenants would be moved into uh, apartments that would become communal apartments. So, say, one apartment would be completely sealed, another one next to it would be completely sealed, and both sets of wives and children would be moved into a third apartment, usually one family per room where they would live for a little while until being kicked out of the House of Government altogether because the House of Government was still uh, meant for government members. And so they would be then shipped out uh, and to eventually find other abodes uh, in other places. Who took their place? Was there... Was there a special type of per person or class that took their place as government officials? Uh, surviving government officials did. And there are lots of stories of a family being arrested, a new family moving in, that family being arrested, and third family moving in, and so on. So that, as I say, continued for about a year and a half. Uh, then eventually it slowed down and almost stopped. Um, but there were only two and a half years left until the war, at which point most residents moved out uh, to be replaced after the war by second and third echelon of government officials. Post-war government officials preferred other buildings other fashions, other interiors, uh, and indeed other areas within the city of Moscow. So it uh, stopped being, practically speaking, the house of government. And indeed, it stopped being referred to as the house of government. And uh, uh, since the 1970s, when Yuri Trifonov's novella, The House on the Embankment, 
came out, came out it's been known primarily as the House on the Embankment. Do you have a guess as to what explained this whole uh, thing that you've been describing and how it relates to the millennial view of the, of the Bolsheviks? Uh, you mean the terror? Yeah. The, um, well, I think it is directly related to the, to the Bolsheviks' uh, millenarian expectation. Um, the, most of them expected for the, for the world as they knew it to end within their lifetimes. Um, the key word in their correspondence was faith, faith in communism. Uh, they also expected, and certainly Stalin did, uh, an apocalyptic war. And that starts certainly in 1936, increasingly in 1937. That's when the so-called reign of terror or great terror begins. And it's mostly in the expectation of that war that the hunt for possible traitors began. Um, and I think it is fairly typical, I mean, it is indeed typical of those millenarian sects that succeed in occupying at least parts of Babylon. I mean, the Bolsheviks were unusually successful in that they actually occupied the whole empire. But if you think about the Mennonites in uh, Munster, uh, the, or indeed Jim Jones and his people's temple uh, in Guyana, you see the same thing. You see basically the same reign of terror, the same expectation, which is as paranoid as it is justified of an attack from the outside, a, a search for traitors within, and of course the closer to the sacred center, the more of them there are, or rather the more dangerous and potentially potentially contagious they are. Uh, Jim Jones had his own version of Trotsky, for those of you who remember that story. Um, so yes, I think there is a, there is a direct connection. Uh, my my question concerns Leon Trotsky. Uh, as you know, uh, in the 20s, he became the leader of the left opposition to Stalin and Stalinism. And in the 30s and, and onward, became reviled and exiled and chased across various countries, ending in Mexico, where uh, eventually he was assassinated. And I wonder, in your view, if whether Trotsky's political opposition to Stalinism and what became of the Russian Revolution uh, became matched in any way or accompanied by a personal ideology or practice that differed uh, in any significant ways from what you've described. Yes, Trotsky's views differed from those of the uh, of the members of the party's leadership in the 1920s in that he was much more 
consistent and radical in his millenarianism. Um, I think there are essentially three ways of dealing with the postponement of the fulfillment of the prophecy with the non-arrival of the end of the world or the Messiah, whatever the prophecy may be. Uh, One is to die while trying to bring it about. And that was Trotsky's position. That was Jim Jones's position, arguably David Koresh's, and there are many other uh, examples. Um, And the other two, I think, are one, uh, if the Messiah doesn't come, to claim that he has, in fact, arrived. This is the official view of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and those, I think, are the sources of Christianity. Uh, And the third one is to uh, reconcile oneself to the imperfections of human existence and learn how to live in a state of permanent expectation when the uh, prophecy becomes an allegory and the expression uh, waiting until uh, what is, how does it go? I'm thinking of the Russian version. Waiting till what is it? It's not second coming. What is it when you wait? Basically waiting until hmm? becomes a synonym of waiting until cows come home. Uh, Yuri, this is I'm not going to go to sleep very easily tonight after your talk. Um, what's extraordinary about it is the way you've uh, uh, taken a story that we know normally through textbooks and so on as, the, as emanating from the level of Stalin or, or from Lenin, um, the Great Terror and so on, and brought it down to an extraordinarily personal level. Um, and I've, I've, I think this is, this is wonderful. It suggests, though, that you're interested... Uh, beyond the the House of Government in um, the many manifestations of this, which we're seeing right now. This is the this is a new age of millennialism, and I wonder if you want to comment at all on um, uh, on these the possible comparisons or interests that you might have in expanding on this. Um, well. I'm not sure if today, well, perhaps. But there is, I mean, millenarianism is, or millennialism if you prefer. Yeah, and I remember the saying, it's till kingdom come. Right, that becomes pretty much the same as till the cows come home. Um, the, but it, it's, it's extremely common. It's, I think, more common for reasons that can be discussed in some prophetic traditions than in others, certainly within Christianity, uh, Islam. Uh, in China, there is a long, and uh, Urban and I talked about this, a very long and very rich history of millenarian uprisings, accompanied by some of the same phenomena, some of the same 
uh, development, same expectations, and same great disappointment. Um, they proliferate particularly at when times, I mean, predictably enough, so-called moral panics when, you know, happen when times seem out of joint. That's the way the time of Jesus is usually described. He was, of course, one of an extremely large number of doomsday prophets at the time. Um, what is interesting to me also is that the Soviet Union ended, if you will, the Russian Revolution did, the way it began, in the midst of one of those periods. Because the collapse of the Soviet Union was accompanied, and this is just something that most of us, those of us who um, who go to Russia regularly and used to go there in those years, in the late 80s and 90s. There was a time of a remarkable proliferation of doomsday cults of various kinds. Uh, so, it, of course, it's very much alive. I think the Christian tradition, and of course the Marxist tradition, post-Soviet, produced a whole series of those. Um, of various kinds. Um, and uh, today we, I think, witness a resurgence within the Islamic tradition, which to my mind is nothing peculiar to Islam, although I think there are some very interesting differences between those, between various millenarian traditions. Uh, but ultimately, you know, in some very important ways, very similar to the Christian one, the, indeed the Buddhist one as well. Uh, and another very uh, fruitful uh, encounter that leads to millenarian upheavals uh, is one uh, between European uh, newcomers and traditional societies. This is from Polynesia to um, to South America. There's a long story of those. And this is, again, almost invariably when the world you think you understand comes to an end and is transformed into a world you no longer understand. Um, and I think, I think the... Uh, early 20th century um, was such a period throughout Europe, but especially in Russia. And we, some of us have discussed this, that this was true not just of the Bolsheviks. Those preachers of Bolshevism in that area that is still called the swamp today mingled in various ways with preachers of the end of the world who came from a variety of traditions, many of them Christians, but not, uh, not only. You portray the, um, the residents of the home as, as true believers in, their, in a lot of their correspondence and diaries, but sitting very close to the surface in your narrative is a kind of story about hypocrisy, right, and, and a sort of the coexistence of millenarianism and luxury, people moving into this building um, probably expected they would be there for a while. They furnished their apartments as if they, not as if they were leaving the next day, and the 
14-year-old girl and the children don't expect to be leaving soon. They, they, it's kind of a bourgeois home. Mm-hmm. So do, do you see that as something existing in kind of the psyche of, of everyone there, or were there true believers and hypocrites? I think they mo- that most of them were true believers. I do not think they were hypocrites. If a hypocrite is, is, is someone who is aware of the, of the discrepancy. I think some of them wondered, some of them were bothered by what was going on. As you wrote, among others, you know, many of them were particularly bothered in the 1920s before they moved into the House of Government. By the time they moved into the House of Government in 1931, they were moving not just into the House of Government, but also into a different age. And so their sense of what they were about uh, was different in the mid-1930s. But they were still occasionally, they would still occasionally wonder and worry, and there are various traces of it. Indeed, in the, in the Soviet literature of the mid-1930s, there are lots of traces of it. It's all about immortality and all about the circumstances of the imminent death. Um, and they worried about their families being there. Um, they had no idea how to, what to do about it. Uh, and what's interesting is that the party, you know, we're now talking about them as individuals, but since they were top party officials, they also represented, and it was their job to formulate party policies. They, and this is where I think the peculiarity of Marxism comes in. I mean, there are, there, are, there are many. But one has to do with the fact that uh, with the very, very flat, sort of narrowly socioeconomic uh, conception of human nature and the assumption that all those things would, be, would take care of themselves. The total lack of, of uh, guidance. A lot of these people were eager for guidance. Basically, what to do when children are born, or when their parents die, or, w- or when they would get married. And they would turn to various uh, figures of authority, various texts, but the classics of Marxism-Leninism, including the, uh, the latter-day ones, had nothing to say about everyday human morality. And they, without explicitly reflecting on this, were acutely aware of a, of a problem. That was reflected in the way the party functioned. The party reached into the lowest reaches of Soviet societies, Soviet society, but only at work and in school. You join the party at work or in school. You would go through so-called purges. You would engage in confessional monologues and all those other things we know about party membership. All of that you would do at work or in school, but not at home. These people who presided over the Soviet Union, who would subject themselves to the things that we all find familiar, particularly from Protestant uh, uh, practice, uh, constant mutual observation, constant uh, confessional uh, 
disquisitions, and so on. They lived in that house of government as if it were still a swamp. They were, as I say, they would come home and they would be surrounded by some some old man murmuring something in Hebrew or someone whose priestly past is barely concealed. And there they would be. And party commissions, whose job it was to check on party members, would come to the house of government in their capacity not just as tenants but as party inspectors. But they would stay in the basement because they would only check on people working in the house of government as painters, elevator technicians, and so on. And they would be supervising those people in that huge, elaborate basement. They would never venture upstairs into those apartments where, of course, contagion contagion kept spreading. And if you read, and there are not many of those, but some of the texts produced by people actually under investigation, if you read some of the things that Bukharin has to say in his so-called prison manuscripts, you see the agony, not just of the kind that Kessler described, but having to do with what I have just described as well. The beloved father of your concluding story, was he a murderer too? And if not, by choice or by pure accident? It's like you know Clinton saying, depends on what is, is. <laughs> really depends on how you, how you define murder. They were, most, not all, but they were, many of them had killed during the Civil War. Most of them had one way or another participated in the elaboration, preparation, justification, and often implementation of collectivization, which resulted in in, uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths and was indeed designed to produce thousands of deaths. Uh, Some of them were professional executioners. Some of my uh, most dearly beloved characters in the story I'm telling were executioners, were uh, professional mass murderers. In other words, secret police officials whose job it was to uh, kill. But most believed in the necessity of violence. Both were unabashedly devoted to the notion that violence was important, that it was needed, that it was an integral part of the project. Uh, and they, they uh, were not apologetic about it, nor would they consider it a problem, those who managed to produce something while in captivity. That was not something they would apologize for. Bolshevism was about Armageddon, and Armageddon is about mass murder. And so, I believe, is the last book of the, of the New Testament. So in that sense, at least when it comes to theory, they were not original, not any more violent than any other millenarian sectarian. They, unlike many, actually got to 
you know, got their prophecy fulfilled, got to see it unfold, and then contributed to it, sort of the way Thomas Munster, speaking of those millenarians who actually managed to do some killing, did. So this is not to justify them, but perhaps to suggest that this is A, not unique, and B, fairly complex. So if the question is whether we should feel sorry for that father, well, I think it would be up to the, to the reader to decide. Um, perhaps I could finish with one very short story about the, the worst, or one of the worst executioners who lived in that building, who actually uh, was the initiator of the implementation of the so-called Order 00447, which was the order for mass arrests and executions. Uh, so he was in some ways the, the uh, most prolific murder, uh, uh, murderer in the Soviet Union at the time. At the time. Um, and uh, his wife wrote a memoir Rather, she told the story of her life uh, in an oral interview. And she talks about their love for each other and their life together and so on. The story ends, or at least the way I read the story, it ends with his last day uh, at large. Uh, They were over at someone's place at the party and the telephone rang and someone said that you are needed at the ministry. He was at that point working at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And he said, strange, I already signed everything. Anyway, they called again and he went over there. And, uh, and then someone called again and asked, where is he? I said, well, he left, he's on his way. And they called three hours later, where is he? Then his wife understood what had happened. Then she went home. She saw the search. The secret police officers were there, uh, turning everything upside down. And they were still asking her where, where he was. And then finally she was told that he had been arrested, uh, that he had arrived wherever he was supposed to arrive. So it took him, I think, about six hours to get to the place, to that house of torture. He knew it was a house of torture. He had subjected countless people to torture. He had sentenced many more to death. And then his time came. And she, who didn't really know about what he did at work, she had some suspicions, but she convinced herself that he wasn't... Uh, involved in anything really. It was in the middle of January uh, in Moscow. It was very cold. There was snow everywhere. And so she spent, according to her, the rest of her life wondering about what he did during those six hours that separated the moment of his departure and the moment of his surrender. She imagined him wandering around Moscow thinking of suicide, perhaps trying to go home and seeing secret police guards at the door who were waiting there in case he returned. Six hours of walking around, and then he arrived at his destination, and then after a year of 
torture and interrogations, he was shot. So, anyway, I think I should stop here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.